Jesus Christ. Amen. We are jumping back into the Gospel of John. We travel with Jesus to the cross and to the resurrection. And we pick uh, John back up right after uh, the disciples and Jesus have celebrated Passover in that upper room in Jerusalem. And as our text begins, we see Jesus and his disciples, they are walking out of the city of Jerusalem, past the large wall, through the, the large gate. They cross the small, narrow Kidron Valley and go up into the Mount of Olives. It looks a bit like this. There it is. You can see the massive uh, Dome of the Rock right there. Back in Jesus' day, it would have been the temple that was right there. But that's the gate he would have gone through. You can see it's a small valley. And you're standing from this perspective, right on the Mount of Olives. It's a short distance between Jesus and this mountain. They call it a mountain. We would call it a hill. They call it a mountain. But it's a Mount of Olives. And Jesus and his disciples were camping out there. We believe around this time the city of Jerusalem had a population of about 30,000 people. But for Passover, it swelled to 60,000 people. And so people would camp all around the city. And Jesus and his disciples were camping in that garden of Gethsemane. And it looks kind of like this. When it's manicured as today as it is back then. But there are olive trees everywhere. Undoubtedly belong to someone who was uh, used the olive trees when doing olive press there. And this is where Jesus and his disciples were camping out. There were thousands of people camping around the whole city. Which is why uh, the soldiers needed Judas. They needed someone who knew where Jesus was and could find him in the dark in the midst of all those other campers. They wanted to get Jesus at nighttime when most people were asleep or resting, and so the crowd would not rescue Jesus. And so the soldiers needed Judas. They go to the garden. They find Jesus and the disciples there. Judas betrays his Savior with a kiss. But our text makes it clear that from here on out, Jesus takes control of the situation. And he asks the commanding officer, who are you looking for? And the officer says, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds back with three words, I am he. And at those three words, the text tells us that the soldiers fell down to the ground. Because Jesus uses the divine name for God. I am. In Hebrew, those words are Yahweh. Yahweh, I am. And so when Jesus responds back to the soldier, I'm guessing in Aramaic, not in Greek, he says, I am he. And when Jesus uses the divine name, his divine name, the soldiers fall down to the ground. Again, Jesus asks them, who are you looking for? The text says the command, the officer responded back, Jesus of Nazareth. I'm guessing he said it a lot more quietly the second time. Um, Jesus of Nazareth, please. Jesus again says, you can let these disciples go. They're not the ones you're looking for. In doing so, he saves their lives and condemns his own. 
It's at this point the text tells us that, that Peter takes out a sword. My guess is he was emboldened by seeing all these soldiers fall down at just three words from Jesus. And so Peter grabs a sword and starts hacking away. And Peter, no soldier, he misses. And you're like, how can you miss? He misses. And he cuts off the ear. I'm sure he was aiming for the head. John's gospel is the only gospel that lists Peter's, Peter by name. All the other gospels say, one of the disciples pulled out a sword. John mentions Peter specifically, and we assume the reason is because that John's gospel is written later. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written earlier when Peter was still alive and still could be arrested for this crime of cutting off somebody's ear. And so the other gospels were like, well, it was one of us. We're not going to say who. But it was one of us cut off an ear. John's gospel is written later, after Peter has already been martyred for the faith. And so John lists Peter by name. And it's at this point where Jesus heals the soldier and says to Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? It's not phrase, right? There's no cup there. The only cup that was actually there that we can think of would be the cup they used for the Last Supper, where Jesus passed around the cup and said, Take and drink, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of all sins. There's no cup present in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, if you know your Old Testament like they undoubtedly did, they would all know exactly what Jesus was talking about. Because Jesus is talking about the cup of God's wrath. And God's wrath being illustrated as a cup that you drink was throughout the Old Testament. Here are just some examples here. Thanks, Phil. Job 21. Let their own eyes see their destruction. Let them drink the cup of the wrath of the Almighty. Again, we see in Jeremiah... This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup, filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. And finally, in Isaiah, it says this. This is what your sovereign Lord says, your God, who defends his people. See, I have taken them out of your hand I've taken out of your hand the cup that made you stagger. From that cup, the goblet of my wrath, you will never drink again. Isaiah prophesies that the people of Israel will never drink the cup of God's wrath again. And the reason Isaiah can prophesy this is because one is coming who will drink it. And he will drink it on behalf of all the people of Israel. He will drink it on behalf of all the people the world. And Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath on the cross. It's not a popular idea today. There are some so-called theologians who speak against the wrath of God. 
God is love, they like to say. And Jesus did not die on the cross to satisfy God's wrath, but rather to show the extent of God's love. Which is true. Jesus does die on the cross to show the sacrificial nature of God's love. But he also dies to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. Because sin has a price. Sin is evil. If someone has sinned against you, you know this. I'll never forget, I was a senior in high school, and we had theology class, and the theology teacher asked, he said, "Um, have you ever had trouble forgiving someone? And one of the kids said, I would like to kill the... He used a word, I'd like to kill a person who murdered my sister. And then we realized that sin has a price. And that all sin committed against you, committed against me, all sin in this world that's committed is ultimately committed against God. Because it's His law. And he is holy. And wrath is an appropriate response to sin. Because if you hear about some things out there in this world and it doesn't make you angry, then there's probably something wrong. (laughs) Wrath is an appropriate response to sin. And I've never done anything that's going to get me in jail. By God's grace, we hope that continues, right? <laughs> but if you were to take my pride, because that's my most prevalent sin. If you were to take my most prevalent sin of pride, and you were to take it as an, as an image, and put it up against the backdrop of Jesus' humility, and his love, and his grace, and his holiness... you would see the most vile, ugly, and saddest picture you have ever seen. And Jesus takes the cup. He takes the wrath of God that should have been on ourselves. He takes it. And he satisfies the wrath of God against sin. On the cross, he drinks the cup. Not only that, not only does he satisfy the wrath of God, but he does it for you, and he does it freely. In modern literature today, there are still images of the the cup of wrath, right? Uh, Steinbeck's classic, The Grapes of Wrath, is an allusion to a revelation where it talks about the cup of God's wrath, the grapes of wrath. More recently, though, it's been Harry Potter. How many of you read Harry Potter? Harry Potter series? All right, if you're middle schoolers, you've read Harry Potter. All right, there you go. All right. So in the movies, there is a cup. There is a cup, per se, and it has cursed water. And uh, Dumbledore yeah, has to drink it. And so I'm going to show you that clip at this time.
This person might paralyze me. Might make me forget why I'm here. Might cause me so much pain that I'd beg for relief. You want to indulge these requests. It's your job, Harry, to make sure I keep drinking this potion. Even if you have to force it down my throat. Understood? Why can't I drink it, sir? Because I'm much older, much cleverer, and much less valuable. You're good health, Harry. Dumbledore drinks the cup in order to obtain an artifact that's going to help bring about the downfall of the villain in the story. Now, the movie doesn't do as good a job, but the book makes it clear that when drinking the cup, Dumbledore is facing, or he's, 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 a, he's suffering physical torment, but he's also suffering spiritual torment for the guilt of sins he's committed in the past. So in this sense, it's a poor illusion of what Jesus has done for us, right? Because Jesus doesn't drink the cup for his own sin and suffer the guilt of that. He suffers all of our sin. But what it does do a good job of doing is that Dumbledore drinks in order to save Harry and other people. He drinks on behalf of someone else so they might prosper. As he says to Harry before he starts drinking, to your good health. Think of something that you hate to do. Something that you abhor doing. Like, 
Maybe going to the dentist. How many of you hate the dentist? I mean, not hate the dentist, you hate going to the dentist, right? I can't stand going to the dentist. Can't stand it because I have what they call extra tartar, right? And so when I get in the chair, they just start scraping away. <laughs> and they're scraping and scraping, and you're in the chair, and you start sliding down, like, all right? And you pull yourself back up and start sliding down some more, and you're like, and then they start poking around. You're like, hey, does this, is this a tender spot for you? And you're like, you feel this pain from your mouth, it goes down your spine out your leg and out your toe. I mean, you feel it go, go all the way down. And you're like, ah, 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 ah. Wouldn't it be cool if someone could go to the dentist for you? Wouldn't that be great? You could stay at home, you could watch a movie, and someone else gets the scraping and the poking and on the slide down the chair, and then one hour later, you can feel your teeth and you're like, they feel great. My teeth feel fantastic. You got that nice, clean, minty feeling, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? Some of you have gone through chemotherapy. All of you know someone who's gone through chemotherapy. And what I've heard is chemotherapy is like having the worst flu you've ever had for three to four or five months. It's horrible. It's horrible. Wouldn't it be great? Someone could do that for you? They would go to chemotherapy. And they would lose their hair. And that person would experience the sickness and the exhaustion and the pain. And three months later you went, oh, I'm cancer free. I feel great. Wouldn't that be great? When Jesus drank the cup, he brought on himself all the wrath of God. And he took the price, the penalty of your sin upon himself. And in return, gives you his healing and his grace, his love, free. His life forever, always. Because he drank the cup. There are times, my friends, when you are called to drink the cup on behalf of others. Not in the way that Jesus did it. Not in the sense of someone else's sin, or to take away their punishment, or to take away God's wrath upon them. Not in that sense, of course. But you are called sometimes to absorb pain. Pain that isn't yours, but that you're called to absorb it nonetheless. As John Maxwell says in one of his books, the job of a leader is to absorb pain. And if you lead, you know this. And I pray all of you lead in one way, shape, or form, whether by your words or by your actions. The job of a leader is to absorb pain. And perhaps you've had the experience of having someone who's close to you, a spouse, a good friend, and that person has had pain in their life. There's been abuse. There's been sin done against this individual. And you become close to this person. And you find out that part of being a friend to this person is absorbing some of their pain. 
because of what they've gone through. And you may think to yourself, this isn't fair, it's not my issue, it's their issue. But there you are, and you're a friend, and you're not quite sure what to do. And sometimes God invites you to drink the cup. And you do that by just, first of all, listening. You just listen. You hear what they've gone through. You hear what they've experienced. And you just listen. And you never try to, to, to rationalize it or to make it feel better or not quite as bad. I know someone, uh, this was years and years and years ago, and, and uh, she was telling someone how um, uh, her fiancé had left her. And the guy responded by saying, you know, I know how you feel. I got stood up at homecoming one time. It's not the same. Didn't help, right? Not a good thing to do, right? So when you drink the cup, you just listen. You listen. And you say things like, that sounds really hard. And I can't imagine what you're going through right now or what you've gone through. You absorb some of the pain. And then you walk in their shoes. Because when you put yourself in someone else's shoes, all of a sudden you're, you're slower to criticize and you're, you're quicker to understand. You absorb the pain. The second thing we do when we drink the cup is we forgive and then mentor. And you need both. You forgive quickly. Because that's what God does for us, right? But then you mentor. Because to just forgive someone is to let some poor behavior continue, right? And it just continues and continues and continues. And then you feel like a punching bag. And that's not good for anybody. It's not good for you. It's not good for them. It's not good for anyone around that person. But you forgive. And then you say things like, you know, when you said this, it really hurt. Or when you did this, is there a way you could have redone it? So you could have done something better. You set clear boundaries. You say, this is okay behavior, this is good. This is not good, this is going to hurt you. And then you express encouragement easily. You just encourage and encourage. Because when someone has experienced pain in their past or they're going through a painful situation right now, they don't need to hear, well, you should, or you oughta, or if you only... But what they really need to hear is Jesus loves. Jesus lives. And I love you too. You absorb the pain, you forgive and mentor. And we can do it because Jesus drank the cup for you. He took on himself God's wrath and absorbed it in his very body. And he suffered He died on that cross for you and for me. And in return, we get all of his health. We get his righteousness. We get his purpose for living. We get his joy for life now and always. Because Jesus Christ died and rose and lives.
Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. Thank you that you drank the cup for us, Lord, that you died the death we should have died to give us the life we did not deserve. And Lord, you invite us to share that kind of grace to those around us, to drink the cup. And Lord, we pray for wisdom when we do that, Lord, because it's a hard thing to do. It seems like we fall from one side of, of forgiving too much to the other side of, of being too harsh, Lord. And it's hard to walk that middle line of forgiveness and mentoring. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, for those times when there's been sin done against us, Lord, we ask for your peace. We ask, Lord, for that reminder again of what you have done for us and how we are yours. We thank you, Lord God, for that other cup, the cup of your supper, where we taste and see your forgiveness and your acceptance, that physical reminder that your grace and your power prevail. Lord, for those times when we are sinned against, Lord, may we rest. May we rest in your grace and secure your love. And also, Lord, secure in your justice. Secure that we can just let that go. That we can release that anger. Lord, because you are a judge. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you suffered so that we might live now and always. Amen. Let's stand and praise your God.